the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. I have to lay low for a while So I'll be staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side When I'm in my quarantine a little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side We're all in for a bumpy ride Without you here, I hold on to this phone so tight, and I whisper you a goodnight kiss. I'll see you on the other side when I crawl out of my cage. When the world is purified, I will find you, and I promise this: I'll see you on the other side. The other side, and I'll meet you with arms open wide. I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side, and I'll 
meet you with arms open wide I'll see you on the other side Welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to shift gears here a little bit and uh, talk about uh, a new book from the uh, history professor at Boston University, Charles Delheim. It's called Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. And Charles joins me by phone. Hi, Charles. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. It's very nice to be here. Uh, you know, as, as I was, and I, I have to apologize right off the bat, I have not read the book yet. Um, when did the book come out, or when does it come out? Well, actually, it comes out today, so there's plenty of time for all of us. All right. Um, but as I was reading about the book and some of the reviews, which have been phenomenal, um, I, I couldn't help wondering, is there an overlap from the Monument Men story of trying to retrieve uh, uh, ill-gotten Nazi uh, gain artwork and so on? Well, it's less of an overlap than a very different approach. Um, most of what has been written about Nazi stolen art focuses on it's pillaging on uh, this darkly enthralling story of how Nazis and collaborators ransacked Jewish-owned art collections along with uh, precious manuscripts, rare books, musical instruments, sacred objects. And that story is reasonably well known. So what I set out to do is actually to turn that story on its head. And what I mean by that is what I tried to do in the book was to ask and answer very different questions. Um, that is to say, um, how and why did Jewish outsiders, against all odds, acquire so much old and great, uh, old and um, modern art in the first place? How did these people become pivotal players in the art world, what kind of reaction did their new prominence um, call, and what happened to them? So this is a book um, which is really about the untold story behind Nazi stolen art. You know, it's, it's interesting that when we talk about the valuable art that was plundered by the Nazis during World War II, we don't always associate, in fact, rarely have I ever seen it associated with Jewish ownership to begin with. Well, it's an interesting thing, and it has, this has a long history. So my book begins with James Rorimer, who, when we meet him, was a lieutenant in the U.S. Army and eventually became the director of the Metropolitan um, Museum. And James Rohrmer comes from a family of Ge German-Jewish origin in Cleveland. Uh, he goes to Harvard, um, he, and then he goes to work at the Metropolitan Museum as a curator of medieval art. Uh, he tries to get into the U.S. Army, but he's turned away because of heart problems. And then he pulls every string he has, and he has quite a few, 
to get the army to reconsider and goes in as a um, buck private. Uh, when Rorimer ends up in Normandy, which is directly after the D-Day invasion, his initial charge is to deal with historic buildings, to make sure that they are protected as far as possible, or if they're hit um, by um, enemy bombs or by um, allied uh, bombs or um, any kind of attack, um, that they can be repaired. But gradually, he and his fellows come to realize that an inconceivably large amount of art and of great art has been ransacked by the from these Jewish collections. And the recovery of this art is really a an important part of the Allied mission. Um, even Eisenhower, the supreme Allied commander, makes clear how important it is to recover these great works of art. And these works of art, especially you know, the old masters, whether it's Raphael or Titian or Rembrandt or Vermeer um, or many others, become um, some symbols of civilization, symbols of what of the things that the Allies are fighting for. So while Rorimer himself is well aware that the art that he is after has come from Jewish-owned um, art collections and has been pillaged, this isn't something that he emphasizes. Um, the Monuments Men are interested in recovering stolen art. Um, they have little or no role in its restitution, and what they end up doing really as a matter of expediency is returning the art to the country of origin. Now, that may have been necessary because they lacked not only the time, but the local knowledge necessary to track down owners. Uh, but it was also a problem because you're returning it to countries like France and Holland, um, which uh, face immense problems of reconstruction after the war, and which in many cases, though by no means all, resisted giving back great works of art that they wanted to keep for themselves. So it's a very mixed record about it. Um, and when uh, Rorimer goes back to the States a number of years after he's back home working at the Metropolitan, and by then he's received the Bronze Star from our country, he's been awarded the Légion d'honneur um, from France, he writes a book called Survival, which is about the protection and salvage of works of art during wartime. And it's a memoir, um, and it's a pretty good memoir um, about what happens to him and what he actually does. And while he's more than aware of who are the victims of Nazi pillaging, his emphasis is upon the works of art themselves. And to that extent, it's very much the work of a curator, of an art historian. But um, he is perhaps a little skittish on the Jewish origin of this story. And this is not inconsistent with many things that happened after the war, whether it's the Nuremberg trials or um, 
early attempts at restitution, which go forward. And it's only gradually that this becomes seen as a Jewish story. Give me another example. There's a terrific um, film by John Frankenheimer starring Burt Lancaster called The Train, which is about an art train um, that the Nazis sent from Paris. And uh, they wanted to send it back to Germany as the Allies were approaching so that they could retain ownership, big, big quotes, of the art they had pillaged. And in this movie, there's not a single mention of the fact that this art had been pillaged from Jews. It is regarded as the great heritage of France, which in a certain sense it was. But it leaves out something crucial, which let me just tell you about briefly. The unit that um, ultimately tracks down the train, uh, which is a unit of General Leclerc's Free French, is headed by a young man named Alexander Rosenberg. And Alexander Rosenberg and his detachment have no idea what's in this train. So they go to um, find the train using information from the resistance. And this young captain tells his men to be very careful about opening the doors for fear that there are German soldiers there waiting in ambush or perhaps bombs that may detonate. And when he opens these doors, what he finds astonishingly is Renoir's, Cezanne's, Matisse's, Picasso's that he had last seen in his father's gallery in Paris. And that's simply left out. So while it's known that these works of art were stolen from Jews, it's really only in the later 1990s that this becomes seen as a Jewish story, as part of the Holocaust. There's a lot of information uh, in this book and, and a lot of um, larger-than-life characters that, that carry the narrative. It, do you think it, it is, how did you approach telling this story? It, do you consider it a historic novel? Well, I hope not. Um, it's historic, but it's not a novel. But I did try to um, frame this as a narrative and to tell it in the most interesting, vivid, and entertaining way um, that I could. So when I began, I had this historical puzzle or problem that I wanted to unravel, which I, as I mentioned before. Charles, Charles, I have, Charles, I hate to interrupt, but I have to put a comma here because I have a break coming up in just a moment. We're sure. just, no we're problem. just, we're just beginning to unpack this uh, fascinating story written by Charles Delheim. It's uh, Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. And we're going to unpack it some more after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. Uh, Charles, can you stick around so we can talk more? Absolutely. All right. We'll be... Uh, We'll let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse.
Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about a new book called Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern with uh, Boston University history professor and author Charles Delheim, who joins me by phone. Charles, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Not at all. I get robocalls, too. (laughs) Well, our attorney general on Michigan is uh, out to put an end to it. Um, We were talking a little bit about just the simple fact that a lot of the plundered art um, that Nazis uh, accumulated during World War II came from stripping Jews of their property and and that a lot of this art had belonged to Jews. And you mentioned this at the very beginning of uh, the last segment when we first started talking, is part of what your book looks at is how European Jews acquired so much great art in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And so, were you able uh, to unco- uncover some, uh, I don't know, trend or, or cultural uh, uh, reason for that? Well, there were a number of things, and some are economic and some are cultural. Um, a lot of the people who founded these great galleries, people like... Uh, Nathan Wildenstein or Joel Duveen or um, Alexandra Rosenberg, um, the young captain's grandfather, were um, commercial or financial middlemen. Uh, They were people whose skills and contacts came from very different trades. And the reason that Jews were congregating in these trades is because so many paths were closed to them. And this is something which you see in the um, economic patterns of a lot of minorities. That is, minorities don't tend to be evenly distributed in a variety of economic activities, largely because they are barred by discrimination or prejudice. So many of these Jewish middlemen are developing commercial skills that are useful in just about any enterprise. So Nathan Wildenstein, he's born in a small village in Alsace um, on the other side of the Rhineland. And his father and grandfather are horse dealers. Uh, Nathan has um, only a rudimentary um, education goes to work on dealing in horses. Uh, and then in 1870, the Franco-Prussian War breaks out, and Nathan uh, makes a radical choice. He decides to leave home and to go to Paris. Uh, but Paris is under siege, and he has to end up in a small town in the middle of France where he joins the army. Uh, When he gets out, he starts working in very modest jobs, uh, tailor's assistant and as a um, textile merchant. And then one day, 
a uh, client comes to him with a picture and says, can you sell it? And, you know, Nathan was ambitious. He was entrepreneurial. He didn't have a lot of money, so he seized the opportunity. But there was one problem. He knew absolutely nothing about art. But to his credit, he troops off to the great museum in Paris, the Louvre. He spends 10 days there trying to figure out what he is looking at. And somehow or other... <laughs> I, I'm, sorry to, I'm sorry to laugh, Charles, but I was just trying <laughs> to imagine myself doing that and how little I might come out with. <laughs> well, I think, you know, Tom, that's really true for most of us. And the fact is, it's... Um, the people I write about had astonishing eyes, and these astonishing eyes came from enormous amount of effort of scouring museums and galleries, looking at one work of art after another. Um, in the first generation, anyway, um, few or any of them had um, um, really any higher learning, uh, let alone degrees in art history. Um, they are self-taught. And what's interesting about them is, yes, they're merchants, and some of them are extremely good merchants and salesmen, um, but they're also connoisseurs, because you can't trade art um, unless you have good knowledge about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the slightest idea about what you're buying and selling. And in that respect, while art's a commodity, bought and sold on the market like a variety of other things. Um, it's also a symbolic form. And you need to have a, um, a really good grasp on what's authentic and what's not to succeed in this business. So the economic part is most of these people, whether you know, grain merchants or stealers, selling vegetable products, um, uh, or the ones who are most successful have a seat on one of the stock exchange or commodities exchanges. Um, they go into the art world and they are plunging head first and gradually um, apply their commercial skills and habits. They also have another advantage that like most disadvantaged minorities, um, Jews survived through ethnic networks. And some of these ethnic networks, which had nothing to do with religion and everything to do with people just being able to make their way in the world. Anyway, some of these ethnic networks are international. So as the art market becomes international, as you see the rise of um, great American capitalists with great cultural ambitions, these people are in the right place at the right time. So I could go on with the, about the economic story, well, but that, I don't want to... I, I want to talk about the value of the art and how much of yeah. it starts out with value and how much of it acquires value through who has owned it? Well, that's a really interesting question, and it depends a lot on whether we're talking about 
you know, the great European old masters, as I said, you know, Raphael, Leonardo, Titian, Rembrandt, and so forth. Or we're talking about um, the unknown young modern artists who end up becoming um, the titans of the age, of any age, you know, like Picasso. So in the art market, uh, paintings' values have, you know, fluctuate. Um, for much of his mature lifetime, Rembrandt um, sold his works for what we would now consider to be very substantial prices. Uh, in the 18th century, when a smoother, more polished, classical style becomes the fashion of the day, uh, Rembrandt's so-called rough style uh, means that his paintings don't have the same kind of demand in the same kind of market. And then in the early 19th century, uh, with the Romantic poets, Rembrandt um, uh, has a kind of renaissance. And in the 19th and early 20th century, and of course to the present day, Rembrandt's continue to shoot up in value. So the value fluctuates. And uh, remember, the value of a picture has nothing to do with the canvas it's on. Um, it may have something to do with whether it has a fancy frame or not. Um, and it has nothing to do with the cost of the paint. Um, you know, in that sense, it's all about meaning. It's all about the value that individuals put on it. And one of the reasons in the most general sense that paintings had values uh, was that um, paintings became the art of kings. They, it had been tapestry. But royal courts, like the court of Charles I in the 17th century in England, become great centers of art, of art collecting. And what the king does, um, the gentlemen and ladies of his court do. They collect art. They learn about art. So it carries a great deal of social prestige. Now, panning forward, if you look at um, the collectors who make their money in commercial, financial, um, industrial occupations, many of these people have great cultural ambitions. They've made money, but they don't have status. And um, being able to acquire major works of European art give them status. Now, I'm not underrating their desire for beauty, not at all. These people were great, great art lovers. But they were also fascinated and stimulated by who owned art before. And um, every significant work of art generally has a provenance, and a provenance is its history. You know, who owned it, when they owned it, who bought it, who sold it to them. Um, sometimes for how much, sometimes not. And when someone like Henry Clay Frick, you know, the great Pittsburgh um, magnate, um, finds out that a particular piece of decorative art um, was owned by, say, uh, King Louis XIV of France, he wants it all the more. And so provenance and status go together, especially in uh, America at the time that 
these um, capitalists are building their collections. And in the world of modern art, um, it works differently. So when, you know, the young Pablo Picasso um, comes to Paris around the turn of the 20th century, um, he's a young man with immense gifts, but those gifts have rarely, if ever, been recognized. And um, his paintings are all but unsellable. Uh, when one of the characters in the book, this extraordinary woman named uh, Bertha Veil, who comes from a very modest middle-class Jewish family, uh, a family that would have preferred that she uh, used her dowry to get married and <laughs> raise a family, um, when, she dis when she becomes an art dealer and she begins working with Picasso, she has this um, profound sense of the value and beauty of his works, but she sells them for a pittance. And one of the reasons she sells them for a pittance was she had no capital to, to rely on. She didn't have a stock of old masters or of established 19th century pictures like some of the better established dealers. So the only way that she could make a living was by selling a work of art as quickly as possible. And the problem with that is that there's just about no time for this work of art to appreciate. Um, if she had sold these um, Picasso um, drawings of a bullfight in, say, 1930, uh, let alone 1950, they would have called enormous sums. But she sells them almost immediately. So one of the challenges for the dealers that I write about is to be able to hold on to works of art, but also to be able to explain to collectors or would-be collectors what they're looking at. Because if you look at a Cubist portrait by Picasso, it looks nothing like a um, portrait by, say, Titian or Velasquez. You can barely make out um, an individual in the dissolving forms. So the dealers that I write about um, have to be able to interpret art to explain the art. And in some cases, like the case of Daniel Conweiler, who becomes um, Picasso and the Cubist principal champion, he writes about the art. And what's interesting about this is that, you know, there's an economic dimension and there's a cultural dimension. And that suits Jews pretty well, not because Jews had any intrinsic gifts or taste. You know, the Nazis used the term Jewish taste, but there is no Jewish taste any more than there's a Presbyterian taste or a Quaker taste or Catholic taste. This is just a kind of anti-Semitic uh, stereotype used for nefarious purposes. But you have to be able to find a way to advocate for the art that you are selling. And if you don't understand it and appreciate it yourself, it's impossible to do so. And I think the key for a lot of these people is 
these are outsiders. They want to find a way into the larger society, what Ibsen called the compact majority. And they want to acculturate. They want to be accepted. And art carried great prestige, and it also provided a, an opportunity to, to find common ground in which what mattered wasn't really, you know, where you came from, who your parents were, where you worshipped or didn't worship, but your own aesthetic commitments. How did the, um, the art that was plundered during World War II by the Nazis, what determined which of those uh, pieces of art would end up belonging to museums and which ones would be in private collections? Well, that's a pretty complicated story, so let me, um, let me walk you through it. The first thing to know is that um, when the Nazis seized um, collections of art owned by Jews, and this process starts in Germany and, and Austria after the, the Anschluss, the annexation of Austria by Hitler, um, and it spreads to every country in Europe, one after another, which, which the, the Germans occupy. What they value most is the art of the northern old masters, whether it was Holbein or Halls or Rembrandt. They saw this as racially pure. Now, that's absolute nonsense. Um, Hitler could not bear the fact that Rembrandt had close ties with the Jewish merchants and rabbis who were his friends and neighbors in Amsterdam. But for them, this is the exemplar of great art and um, they want to have it. So the, the art they're after are these great northern old masters, and the best of them um, go straight to Hitler himself. On the other side of this, though, is modern art and the successive schools of modern art. And there were a lot of them. Impressionist, post-impressionist, symbolist, phobes, cubists, futurists, surrealists, um, expressionists. But for the Nazis, they all boil down to one thing. They say they are degenerate art. And they are degenerate art because they're Jewish, and they're Jewish because they're degenerate. And that's about as bad example of uh, circular logic as you'll see. And even though most of the modern artists um, who the Nazis condemned were not Jews at all. You know, Matisse and Picasso were, for instance, um, were raised as Catholics. They certainly had no um, Jewish ties of any sort in a religious or ethnic sense. They are condemned with the lot. So what the Nazis do with these modern paintings is, well, first, they destroy some of them. Um, second, they sell um, uh, sell them on the mark on the open market, um, usually through a particularly corrupt and venal dealer or set of dealers in Switzerland, which was anything but neutral about such things during the war. Um, and they sell them for hard currency, 
or they trade them for these old master works. That is, they don't want a Monet, um, they might not want a Brock, but they sure want a Holbein or a uh, Vermeer. Now, after the war, the monuments men um, uh, recover a, a vast quantity of art, and um, they repatriate it, as I said, to the country of origin. And that's where things get very, very sticky. Uh, in France, for instance, there is a commission established for the recuperation of art, and they do manage to return a substantial amount of art. But proving the ownership of art um, is not simple, especially because well, many of the people who have been victims of Nazi persecution, let alone the heirs of those who had been murdered in the camps, may not have had documentation. I mean, these are people who literally lost everything. And it was difficult for them to prove that they owned the art. And um, there's a degree of willful blindness on the part of some of these national commissions, who, to be fair, also do a lot of good work. Now, some of these works of art that have been pillaged are considered ownerless. And that's one of those weaselly phrases uh, that really makes all of us pause. It wasn't ownerless. Um, they couldn't find the owners, or um, the owners were dead, or they couldn't find the heirs. Um, it was also in extraordinarily difficult, um, in certain cases, to find art. If you were a dealer or collector, you'd been fortunate enough to end up in, uh, I don't know, New York, Detroit, um, Chicago, uh, a small town in California, you weren't able to just hop over to Europe and scour museums year in and year out. And that's one of the reasons why um, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, it became somewhat easier to locate art. So what happens after the war is there suddenly are a great many works of art um, on the market. And any legitimate dealer um, who is trying to purchase a significant work of art is going to ask for the provenance for this history. And if there's a gap in the provenance somewhere between 1933 when Hitler comes to power and 1945, um, when um, uh, the Nazis fall and we win the war, then as a dealer, as a collector, as an individual, um, as an institution, um, you've got to smell a rat. Um, it wasn't just, there's no other explanation for it. Charles. Um, but many people turned a blind eye. Charles, we're, we're almost out of time but I, I'd like to talk a little bit more if you can stick around. Sure I can. Okay, I, I have another break here, Charles, but, um, but we'll, uh, we'll continue this after the break. The name of the book is Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern by uh, Boston University history professor Charles Delheim, and we'll have more with uh, 
Charles after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current-day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to AmericanSchismBook.com. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We roll into overtime a little bit with our conversation with uh, author and history professor uh, Charles Delheim about his book, Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. Charles, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Happy to. I like overtime. I'm a big baseball fan, so uh, <laughs> extra, extra innings are, is where it's at. Well, we were just, uh, you were just talking about how um, there might be gaps in the histories of some of these uh, classic works of art. And that makes me wonder um, a little bit as we, as we kind of wrap up our conversation this, uh, this morning about the research that went into putting all this together. I feel like we're just scratching the surface, Charles, and, um, and, and I wonder how good were, were the records and, and how deep did you have to dive to put together all the information that's in this book? Well, I think the short answer is that this was supposed to be a short book written in a short time, <laughs> and um, not, none of those things proved to be true, um, to say the least. Um, the research was really extensive. I had to do a, a lot of reading. I mean, by training, um, I'm a specialist in modern European cultural history. I had to do a lot of reading in art history and Jewish history. And I, at the beginning of the book, um, process, I thought I knew a lot more than I did, which is something I tell my students all the time, is that when you get to work, you find out not how much you know, but how little you know. So aside from that reading, I spent a great deal of time, very, very pleasurable time, I have to say, in museums and galleries. And um, most of the work was um, 14 archives, uh, collections of unpublished documents, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, everywhere from, let's say, outside of Florence, Italy, to um, San Marino, California. And again, uh, it was a lot of fun, but it's also, um, there's a lot of page turning. Um, <laughs> when I was a graduate student, my teacher, Peter Gay, uh, once told me in kind of scolding way that history wasn't always a champagne dinner. There's a lot of um, just basic um, gut work. And uh, he was right. Um, but that's how you find interesting things. And that's really how, over time, I came to understand the lives and the works of the people that I write about. And that's what I think makes this a compelling um, story 
is their lives and works, um, their relationships with each other, their relationships with, you know, the great artists of the day, Picasso, Matisse, Modigliani, um, Monet, Degas, and so forth. That's what made it interesting. Well, Charles, I can't believe how fast this uh, this hour has gone by, and, and I still feel like we're just scratching the surface again. The book is Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern by Charles Delheim. Charles, um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book is a great place to start, but where can people find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future? Do you have a uh, website? Well, I, I have to say that thank you very much. I am, I'm, I'm not a much of a self-promoter, so I'm not on social media for the most part, and I don't have a website. Um, you can find out certain things about me on the Boston University um, website, and um, in terms of the book, you can find it on book.org, uh, University of Chicago Press, um, hopefully your local independent bookshop, um, or failing that on Amazon. I've written about a lot of different things, and, um, you know, there's a lot of good books out there um, which are on different subjects than mine, but are on allied subjects. Um, my colleague Jonathan Petropoulos wrote a terrific book called um, um, Goering's Man in Paris, uh, which takes you into the art world of the Nazis from the point of view of their dealers. So I um, highly recommend that one. And um, I'd be delighted to hear from your listeners. Um, I do email, um, and I'd be happy to hear from people. Well, Charles, thanks so much for spending uh, this time with me and sharing your knowledge uh, with me and the listeners both uh, this morning on the air and uh, also in your book. Keep up the good work. Well, it was a pleasure, Tom. Thanks so much for your interest, and I hope everybody is um, well and um, you know getting through this very tough time in our country. Well, take care. Okay, take care, Tom. Bye-bye. Again, Charles Delheim, author of Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica, wearing sandals, lighting candles by the sea. I spent Shavuos in East St. Louis, a charming spot, but clearly not the spot for me. Those eastern winters, I can't endure them, so every year I pack my gear and come out here till Purim, Rosh Hashanah, I spend in Arizona. And Yom Kippur way down in Mississippi But in December there's just one place for me Amid the California flora I'll be lighting my menorah Like a baby in his cradle I'll be playing with my dreidel Spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica by the sea I'm spending Hanukkah 
in Santa Monica Wearing sandals, lighting candles by the sea I spent Shavuos in East St. Louis A charming spot, but clearly not the spot for me Those eastern winters, I can't endure them So every year I pack my gear and come out here to Purim Rosh Hashanah, I spend in Arizona And Yom Kippur way down in Mississippi But in December there's just one place for me Amid the California flora I'll be lighting my menorah Like a baby in his cradle I'll be playing with my dreidel Here's the Judas Maccabeus Boy, if he could only see us Spending Hanukkah in Santa Monica By the sea This was another comedy spotlight On the Tom Sumner program TomSumnerProgram.com The TomSumnerProgram.com The TomSumnerProgram.com From the Tom That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to thank all my guests today, starting with this last hour we spent with uh, Boston University history professor Charles Delheim about his uh, new book, Belonging and Betrayal, How Jews Made the Art World Modern. And uh, before that, we talked with uh, Brendan Kiley, the author of a book called The Other Talk, Reckoning with our white privilege. And uh, I also want to say thanks to my uh, guest from the uh, first hour, Flint based uh, uh, author Connor Coyne, talking about book three of his uh, Urbantasm novel, which is uh, being written in four parts The Darkest Road. And there's smoking George Winters tickling the ivories, letting me uh, know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. But uh, I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And uh, tomorrow, of course, is uh, Armchair Politics. Bobby Clayton Walton, political operative, will be joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and uh, Henry Hatter for our weekly roundtable and we'll kick the show off with New York University historian Ada Farrar about her book Cuba and American History. Good night everybody. The Tom Sumner program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.